0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated.
1: Welcome to episode 176 of the Christian Feminist Podcast, which is part of our Halloween crossover series where we mix things up a little bit, the panelists from other shows, and we have a lot of fun. And our topic this year is the films of John Carpenter. I'm Christina Bieber Lake, and with me today are Danny Anderson and Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Hello, Danny and Victoria. Hello. Hi. Let's introduce ourselves for anybody might be new to the program. Danny, since you're kind of our guest of honor, why don't you start us out? <laughs> uh,
0: thank you. Um, I'm uh, Danny Anderson. I host the Sectarian Review podcast on uh, this network, and I feel a great uh, level of gratitude that the network chose John Carpenter this year uh, because he's my favorite artist uh, across any medium, actually, and I, was felt, I actually feel a little bit um, self-conscious that we chose it because I, I have this kind of, like, uh, fear that people chose it just because they thought it would make me happy. And so I volunteered to be on basically all the shows. So I will be on all of the episodes except the one about the thing, which I think is a book of nature. But uh, so I will be on all the other ones. Uh, so
1: taking one for the team. Well,
0: I'm glad to do it. I feel a little conspicuous, but I also feel responsible for this.
1: So, well, I, I understand that the women voted for zombies. So <laughs> <laughs> Victoria.
2: Uh, Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm one of the founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Um, Really happy to be here uh, with Christina and with Danny, our resident uh, John Carpenter super fan and expert. Uh, Should be a fun conversation. And uh, yeah, the, the network crossover is one of my favorite events of the year. So let's have a good time. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yes, we all will. This this should be a good conversation. I'm Christina Bieber Lake. I teach English at Wheaton College and I am a newly minted horror film fan. Yeah. I don't know how else to say. It, so that's why I'm doing this. I I just seeing horror films that scared me too much to watch when they came out. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's where I'm at. So, before we get started with our specific film, which is The Fog, I thought we could each share a bit of our prior experience with Carpenter's films, which in Danny's case is quite extensive, and then the horror film genre in general. So, who would like to start us out?
2: Um, I can go first. So, I am not a super big horror film fan. Um, though my favorite television show is uh, in the horror genre. Uh, anyone who regularly listens to the CFP will know that I am a diehard fan of the TV show Supernatural, um, which has a lot of references to John Carpenter in the early seasons. So uh, I'm familiar with some Carpenter stuff from that. And also I've seen a few of his films. Um, I've seen Halloween. Um, I think they they don't let you be a... Uh, a feminist with a minor in film and not (laughs) let you see Halloween, I think they take your feminist card away from that.
0: Uh, (laughs) Yes.
2: uh, So I've seen that. I've seen uh, They Live, uh, which I like very much, and I have seen Carpenter did Big Trouble in Little China, right? I know that's not a scary movie, but didn't he do that too? Yes,
0: yes, that's his, yeah.
2: Okay, Um, and I've seen that one, and I think... That's probably it. And now I've seen The Fog. Um, but I'm I'm generally pretty squeamish about horror movies. I don't like really gory stuff. I don't generally like slasher movies. Um, I'm more of a like psychological thriller kind of girl. So I was pleased uh, to find out that The Fog isn't super gory, but is like interesting from a supernatural thriller perspective. Mm.
1: That's so true. So, Danny, how did you said Carpenter was your favorite of all time? I was not expecting that. So we're going to need some <laughs> fleshing out of that.
0: Yeah, he's actually my favorite artist. Like I, I even move him past film. I, I as far as a, an artist who I, I, I don't know, there's something about his entire body of work that I can like relate to. The, the interests and the questions and the worldview um, on some level. And, uh, and so I've always found, and I think what it is probably is I think about it more because I've been saying this for a while that he's my favorite artist. Um, So actually I had the chance to meet him recently in August. He came to Steel City Con, which is Pittsburgh's version of Comic-Con. And I got the VIP package. I splurged on that and got to talk with him for a minute and get his autograph and, and get a picture with him and all that. And so it was a real thrill for me. But around that time I was thinking about why it is I'm so drawn to his work. And I really do think he kind of embodies for me like a, a working class kind of artist. He's definitely I would Ooh. he would not call himself an auteur, but I think most other people would. Um, but he is not. He's definitely not an easy fit with Hollywood either. So he's that's like that's true. He's working in film, but not like in as an insider in the industry, right? So he's sort of got this. I would call him an uh, an auteur like artist with popular sensibilities. And, and I think I can't think of another artist that fits my, my own wiring more than John Carpenter. And so uh, that would be probably the reason why I would call him my favorite artist at this point. But um, and so, yeah, I, um, going way back starting with kind of the basics, Halloween and and the thing, and uh, big trouble in little China was always one of my favorite movies too. Um, and then like sort of later on, I started rediscovering his work like in the nineties and realizing how kind of like tragically overlooked it was when it, when they, these movies came out, this movie, for example, made very few waves and, and got very kind yeah. of mediocre kind of responses. But now yeah. I, think I had never even to... heard
2: of it before yeah. <laughs> we were talking about doing this for the crossover.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, now his work tends to find its legs years later after the i don't know after the pressures of box office and all that are over um and i i have particular theories about that but so yeah i uh i'm a i'm a big carpenter fan i'm a big horror fan in general i like Chris, victoria here though i um very much i lean towards atmospheric horror more than anything else so i really like kind of old-fashioned horror films in a lot of ways And John Carpenter's great influence of movies from the 50s. He's a huge Howard Hawks fan, Um, so he's very big on building atmosphere
1: rather than shock, right? And so, in that way, also sort of
0: fits my uh, fits my style.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense and, and this really is an old school horror film and that also appeals to me more in the genre than the gore. Although I will sit through it uh if need be to uh <laughs> to get my horror fix. So there's that. Um yeah, so like I said, late late comer to the horror film genre and so I didn't see any of the Carpenter films, even Halloween. I didn't see Halloween until this last year. Um, But I saw The Thing and a couple of the other ones a few years back, but I've just really been in this kick. So it's all kind of new to me. I mean, I'm aware of all the, the tropes and the topos and all that stuff, but you know what I mean. So... Let me just say a few short words about the fog, um, and then we're going to get started and picking it apart a little bit. It came out in 1980, just a couple of years after the slasher genre defining film Halloween, which was also co-written with Deborah Hill, um, who also wrote with him an Escape from New York, and starring the same female actors, Jamie Lee Curtis, Adrian Barbeau. Barbeau was married to Carpenter from 1979 to 1984. Kind of a very short period of time where they were married. And it also stars Janet Lee, who, of course, is Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, um, known for, among many other things, the psycho shower scene. Right. So according to an article in Slash Film that recently came out, it was in 1977 that Carpenter and Hill visited Stonehenge. And this mm-hmm. is what Hill said about that. I remember this fog was just sitting on the horizon way past Stonehenge. And John said to me, what if there's something in that fog? Wouldn't that be scary? And that's how it sort of evolved. So <laughs> I think it definitely succeeds in being creepy in that old school horror sort of way. a kind of egg around Poe. More jump scares than not so much gore. And the, the plot is as simple as you can get, right? Revenge for from some sailors who were killed for gold and the founding of this California town. So, so let me just start by asking, was this film what you expected? Was it better or worse? How does it hold up for you? Anywhere you want to start on that?
2: It was Should not I? what I expected. Um, I, I mean, I didn't really have expectations, except I hoped that it would not be a slasher movie and it wasn't. Um but one thing that Danny mentioned that made me realize that I, I left something out um, of, of my own kind of history of sort of part of the horror genre is that. Um, well, let me go back. The thing that I like the most about this movie is that it's very influenced by um, like 1950s and 60s kind of B-movie creature features. And yes. There, there's a way in which uh, the fog is is like a a kind of creature feature monster, like um, the blob or the creature from the Black Lagoon, um, my favorite of the Universal horror movies. And the the pirates actually, when you see them up close, look very much like the creature from the Black Lagoon in the eyes and the face. And I'm I'm sure totally. that's not a coincidence. Um, my, my mom raised me on all those fifties B movies. Um, she took me to the drive-in when I was a kid to see like the blob and all of that stuff, um, at the very end of the, the drive-ins in the late eighties and early nineties. And so I was very pleasantly surprised by this movie because it kind of brought back a lot of things that I really loved, uh, from my childhood and, and exceeded my expectations in that way. Um, another that's so way fascinating. Was, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, because I mean, when I was, you know, in high school in the eighties and there was no VCRs and none of this stuff, it's like all they ever had on Saturday was just this endless stream of those kinds of movies, right? <laughs> like the blob. And it was just like the same ones over and over again, plus some Star Trek episodes in syndication. That was all you could get on TV, you know? <laughs> so it's so fascinating to think of you going and actually seeing some of these films at a drive in. That's really great.
2: I, we probably watch them on TV, too. I mean, because we're, we're actually t- we're talking about the same time period, right? Like, so yes. I'm sure when my when my mom was trying to, like, get a moment's peace, uh, the, the TV she plopped me in front of was what was the same. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I'll to add something to what you were saying about the fog as kind of like the blob. They did actually... Conceive it as a character in the film, and so they actually, there's. If you look at any of the behind the scenes stuff about this movie, the way that they actually produced fog effects was very intricate, and it was always tailored to make it move uh, intentionally. And so I think that's that's definitely an effect that they were going for, something from that era, and also the pirates are right out of like the old ec comics um like a uh, vault of horror and these kinds of oh 50s, totally like, yeah this yes like, john carpenter's again growing up in that era and totally immersed in that and that stuff as well
1: i wondered about when i saw the opening scene with the watch i was thinking about watchmen i don't know if you re- are a big mm. reader of graphic novels and know about the history of all that stuff and how it came out of those old you know Mm -hmm. vault comics but i've read a whole bunch i've taught a class in the graphic novel so i'm familiar with exactly the aesthetic that you're talking about and it it seemed very deliberate and and creepy rather than gory or horrifying and 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 i like that and how about that opening with john houseman
0: telling that story to the kids oh Oh, it's it's so good
1: incredible so good Well, yeah, I mean, that is really—it's it. the storytelling, isn't it? It's—it's the—it's yeah. the, it's the anticipation of it that is way more powerful. Um, you know, like Shyamalan in his good films knows that Hitchcock—that's where he learned. You know, it's—it's mm-hmm. it, it's all that same kind of let's anticipate rather than show that works so well for me. And I was surprised at how good this film was. This is the first time that I've seen it. And I thought, you know, it it deserves more of the respect that it's getting because it is that old school, um, slow burn of of actual like fear. It's gonna get the kid. It's gonna kill the the, the grandmother or whatever, you know, whoever that woman was. It's oh, like, oh y'all, and,
2: I was you know? so worried about that little boy. I was like <laughs> jumping off the couch. It was so hard for me.
1: And her horror, her like being in the lighthouse or whatever that was, the radio station. And not being able to do anything and just shouting over, please, somebody go and rescue my trapped child. You know, that's horrifying. That works. And it does keep you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. So I like that. I loved the aesthetic of the, the, the fog itself and, you know, how she would be like saying it's glowing. And it actually was out there glowing. And as I continued to watch the film, I, I recognized that none of the effects were very expensive at all, and yet they were all very effective. Let's just make random things shake. That actually <laughs> works. <You know? laughs> it's really creepy. I mean, it's, it's sort of some of it was cheesy, but not that much. Not as much as I expected. My husband happened to come in at the very end with the gold glowing cross. And we really wanted it to to sort of fry. Um, well, what did what, what did my husband say? He said, oh, "What's that actor's name? He just escaped me for a second. The guy who plays the How Hal, Hal, Hal Holbrook. How Holbrook. He's like, How Holbrook is a crispy piece of bacon. Like he really wanted to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, they pull I away. I thought it was going
2: to do that too. I yeah. thought they were going to like Indiana Raiders Jones of the Lost Nazi. Jones, yeah, but they didn't.
1: Yeah, they did not. I was disappointed, but they did come back and get him in the end. But but anyway, so I you know the old school effects, not very expensive to manufacture, worked in this film. What do you guys think?
0: Oh, I agree. Um, and actually, this film actually took a lot of reshoots. They cut it together, and Carpenter wasn't happy with it. It, it was coming out in like nineteen. Was it eighty or eighty one? Do we say um, eighty? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's on the cusp of when things are getting gory and that's what audiences are wanting. And so a lot of the, the hook stabbing scenes are kind of reshot later to kind of add a little something like that. Um, the score was redone. Oh, is
1: that right? They yeah. added this sort of really urban legend kind of hook stabbing stuff like in the yeah. eye. Yeah. That was
0: all added later to create some effects. The whole scene with the, uh, the ghosts rising on the slab and the, uh, in the uh, hospital, uh, and drawing on himself. That was all added later. Uh, so there's all the few things he added later, but none of it was very, um, expensive. You're right. It was a, a very kind of moderately budgeted movie. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's a really uh, interesting, I, uh, to me, it's for me, the one, th- I guess in, on the previous show, I might repeat myself. If you listen to multiple of these shows, <laughs> one thing I appreciate about John Carpenter and one reason I think he doesn't quite fit in any particular time period is that he is like making films as as Howard Hawks did. And so it's like an auteur working in a studio system, not like Martin Scorsese. Right. And so there's a way in which his movies have this kind of throwback feel down to the craftsmanship of doing much with little, I think. And I think it's a really uh, fine achievement.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, I, I think I'm a big fan of the Terminator you know, movies, and the director doing his own effects, you know, there's a little bit of that kind of feel to it. It feels more real when it when you're actually seeing like, it's not CGI fog, not that they had that at the time. But, you know, something about things shaking that are shaking from nowhere, it's the easiest effect to make. But uh, it, it just feels more real than some cgi creature or something coming in you know it's again it's the stuff you can't see and that's why fog is such a brilliant metaphor it's just bringing in stuff that you can't see fully yeah
0: Yeah, thematically too for the movie in terms of what it's
1: quote-unquote saying right i think that the fog is a great metaphor oh a hundred percent and i can't remember yeah the exact quote from Edgar Allan Poe at the beginning um i was going to write it down and i just forgot but I was like, oh, yeah, Poe, because they're getting that from stories like Descent into the Maelstrom, which is like the thing that's terrifying in the Poe stories is that you're coming on this big unknown. And it's not just unknown. It's hidden. And it's not just hidden. It's a hidden sin from, you know, a long time ago that we tried to hide. And now it's coming back. It's the imp of the perverse. It's all in Poe, right? You yeah. can't hold it down. It's gonna come back up and get you. You know, and that's why, of course, the priests sacrifice at the end. After Hal Holbrook did not come become crispy bacon, Hal Holbrook, I thought they can't. He has to be sacrificed, right? And then sure enough, you know, he got the he got the hook at the end. That's part of the reason why I've read that. Uh, People didn't like it at first because Halloween was such a genre-defining thing where you're moving into the slasher thing. And then this is so much more like things that aren't – that are from the past. It's a totally different feel.
2: It's so human. Like the the evil – Michael Myers is an an inhuman evil, right? The idea is that they've made –
1: 47
2: halloween movies because he just doesn't die um and and this i there probably aren't actually 47 but it feels like that so i'm going with
0: that um it's about 47 (laughs) i think it's 13 (laughs) uh, technically okay (laughs) thanks danny but that Um, counts halloween 3 which doesn't have michael myers so i'm sorry i digress
2: Um. (laughs) amazing uh so yeah, I the thing that really stuck with me that like I want to watch this movie again and I will recommend it to people is like this is a horror movie the villain of which is basically the human tendency to sin. Yeah. And I 100%. I think that's it's really impactful and and interesting. Um you know, things like pride and greed are incredibly relatable and hiding them is incredibly relatable. Hiding them in the very fabric of our communities and cities, I, you know, it's it's everywhere.
1: Yes, and in that way it felt very Gothic in the Faulknerian way, right? Yeah. Where the past is never dead, it's not even past, it's going to be right there, you can try to found your city on this big lie, and it's very American, right? Uh, the early American writers were all interested in in these kind of founding sins of, of slavery and racism and greed and, you know, the stuff that we wish weren't a part of our American story, but yeah. they are.
0: If this were a Hawthorne story, you would totally believe it. If someone gave you this and told you it was a Hawthorne story, you would totally believe it. Right. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah absolutely. And um, I, that, that's actually a good point Victoria is making. I think we should like stick on it. The, the ghosts in this, aren't really the villains they're almost uh symbols or you know ambassadors of divine justice uh if more than anything else the and in fact the people living today aren't really the villains it's the people from the past who are not coming back to attack us but their their legacy is the villain in this movie and so it is a really kind of thought-provoking and creepy movie because of that
1: Very, very Faulknerian, because with Faulkner, you can be generations out and there'll still be this hidden sin underneath there that just that that comes out, you know, Uh, Poe did the same thing um, and and you you may not be responsible at all for it. And so I was interesting. I was interested to see if they were going to do anything with the Hal Holbrook character being related to the original criminal. Uh, but I couldn't see anything. I'll have to watch it again, but I couldn't see anything that was trying to be suggestive of that, except that I noticed that when things were going to hell on a handbasket, he was there just drinking. He's like, ah, yeah. oh, nothing to do, let's just get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> he is his grandson.
0: Um, it, That's it right. Is, yeah, or great-grandson, yeah. Um, it, well, I think it's his grandson. It is stated at one point in a passing comment that it was um, his his grandfather was the... He wrote the journal that he found. Yeah,
1: right. He did. But there was no other connection. So that feels like the sins of imputation, you Ah, know, the sins of the father or the sins of the sons. And he
2: does seem to know where to look to find the gold.
1: Yes. They 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 get a clue. They got a clue from the book.
2: Okay. yeah, I guess he he does read the journal, but like he he gets to the gold real fast.
0: Yeah, that's (laughs) true. It was no fakey One thing at the beginning, um, there is a, a funny moment that actually speaks to what you're saying, Christina, when the the worker who's leaving for the day, um, Bernard, I forget his name. Um, that's actually John Carpenter. <laughs> that's the. Ad, oh, it was. Yeah, oh, and, oh, yeah. And, I love and cameos. So, and, and so the uh, the priest, How Holbrook's unwillingness to pay him what he is owed. Is kind of like a foreshadowing of this generation. It's like him living out the legacy of oh, that. Of course. Um why father.
1: would there be why would that scene be there except for a cameo, except to say exactly that, right? Yeah, like, oh yeah. just come a little later tomorrow. Yeah. Is what he says. Yeah. He's, and he's I was like, like I was like, why is that in there? <laughs> it's waged basically, it. right? Yeah. But, wage <laughs> that yeah. He's like, yeah. here, have a drink, you know.
2: In my notes, I was, uh, I wrote inverse Ebenezer Scrooge at,
1: at that point. <laughs> like, it's <That's> nice, nice. <laughs> that that is really that's really good. So he's a he's a little bit greedy, a little bit miserly, not willing to pay the wage wage and the the wages, and the guy just takes off. Who yeah. is John Carpenter? I didn't realize that. Oh, that's so funny. I have to see it again now, just to to have, yeah. bear that yep. in mind.
0: Yeah, he shows up in quite a few of his movies in,
1: in little minor roles like that. Yeah, you know. I love that. Oh, cool! And the, just thoughts about the sort of Protestanty gold cross that appears. <laughs> 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 Weren't you expecting something ornate and kind of gaudy? Well, and it's an interesting move
0: by that priest who feels guilty about immediately what they've done, and so he steals the gold from his co-conspirators and makes a cross out of it and sticks it in the wall to hide. Right, and so he yeah, doesn't like do anything to, with it. No, it's like he's trying to just symbolically make penance like privately that, you know what I mean? But just between him and the almighty or something. Yeah. It, uh, it is a really interesting choice on his part
1: for that's how he's going to rectify the situation. Right? Oh, so you think the original criminal did that out of guilt, not saving the gold to later, I guess, why would he shape it into a cross? I guess he's, he melted it down, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There was some sort of penance and, and he left the diary that expressed like his immediate, discomfort with it all and so yeah it's a very strange foundational uh, myth it really is
1: yeah
2: i i felt really gross about the gold being made into a cross i don't know yeah let's talk about that i well first of all like it took me a minute to be like wait how does this priest have a grandfather and i was like oh The other kind of priest, okay.
1: (laughs) The other kind, like my husband is, Victoria, the Anglican kind. The other
2: kind, the not me kind, the other (laughs) kind. Um, And so I had to get over that, and then, I don't know, I started thinking about, like, is this some kind of American uh, providentialism thing, like William Jennings Bryan and Cross of Gold and that whole deal? Mm.
1: Um, and yeah, I, it was the same I, year. I, 18- I just got 16- I got
2: tangled seven. in
1: a lot of directions. Well, the cross of gold that is totally the same period that this you know this was supposed to happen in 1880, that hundred years ago, right? That's exact same years as that cross of gold stuff. If I'm recollecting my history,
0: that's interesting. You know, hmm.
1: you shall not crucify man on a cross of gold. The populism of William Jennings Bryan. Ooh. Yeah, well, and I'm thinking this is because I was on the
0: show earlier today about They Live, for Book of or for Book of Nature. Um, that that church, that story takes place in a church, right? Uh, much of it, the there's a church that's like basically the clubhouse for this revolutionary group that's uh, seeking to overturn the aliens, right? And so, but I think in that that show, that movie, I, I made this point in that show that. John Carpenter is like understanding the revolutionary power of the institution, even if it has like failed. And I feel like this cross of a gold, uh, cross, cross made of the stolen gold is a critique of the institution. And it's kind of hoarding of riches rather than the kind of, um, passing on of riches, right? Uh, whereas in Bay Area, yes. the church building is like the fountain for like enlightenment and freedom in that, in that movie. And so I feel like in this case, this is an institution that hoarded the gold, right? And so it's sort of a critique in that way of, you might just say, organized religion, which, I mean, would be consistent of John Carpenter, I think.
1: That's a good point. The hoarding of it is the way that I read it initially as well. I mean, why would you hide it away in there it's yeah yeah so I, I was what is this maybe it's just um the bible the might have something in.
2: to say about that too
1: <laughs> it <laughs> might
0: <laughs> listeners why don't you look into that for us
1: <laughs> indeed well it, it it was interesting that it that it ended that that church and that there was a kind of um a, a founding religious moment and it was disturbing that it, But again, you don't see Christianity being blamed for the sins of its whiskey priests, right? Uh, So at least there's that. I hate it when it's Christianity somehow that is actually blamed for it, when really it's just sinful people uh, who did that. Yeah. So. Well, any thoughts since this is a Christian feminist podcast about the female characters, particularly the casting of, of Janet Lee. I just thought that was something interesting. But any thoughts about any of that?
2: As you might imagine, I have many thoughts <laughs> about the female characters in this film. Um, I was really intrigued at the kind of spectrum of, of femininity that we get from the, the three main female characters. Um I love the Adrienne Barbeau character. I I knew who she was as an actress, but I'm not super familiar with her work. Um, and I this movie made me want to seek out more of her because I, I think it was just a, a really wonderful performance. But okay, so we have her. She is this kind of sassy single mom and she has this really interesting... Sort of creepy but mostly interesting uh, Relationship With the guy who's calling Into her radio show
1: all the time um, That was so kind of weird
2: It was like I liked it, I found it interesting But I also found it creepy Which I, I really found Most of the male-female Relationships in this movie um, Interesting but also kind of creepy In a way that oh, a felt minute. very late 70s to me
1: Wait a minute, you mean Jamie Lee Curtis just hitchhiking and then having sex with a guy the same night? Oh you my god, You found goodness. that a little weird? <laughs>
2: I, I, I yelled about that more than I yelled about hoping the child was safe. I yeah, like, had an entire conversation with her. Like, girl, don't hitchhike. Okay, now you're hitchhiking. Please don't sleep with her. Don't sleep with him. Oh, uh, you slept with him. Like, I, I just, we had an entire conversation.
1: It was this, like, crazy out like outlying... Um, sexual revolution, just horror show is what that was.
2: He was so, and she's like 18, and he is like yeah. way old. I, it
1: was not cool. Awful. It was awful. As if she's just going. Oh yeah, you're weird. That's great. I'm so glad. Let's go have sex. What?
2: Uh-uh. Um. Who am I? Oh, so the Janet Lee character um is kind of the most interesting i think he was really working with kind of her star body and and the idea we have of janet lee as like the original scream queen from psycho um because she in this film she's very far from that she is kind of an an ineffectual um town leader And uh, when Michael and I were watching it, he said she's basically the mayor from Jaws. I don't disagree with that.
1: (laughs) Oh, good catch, yeah. Uh,
2: Yeah, we we talked a lot about Jaws um, while we were watching this movie, which maybe Mm. we can get back to. But I thought it was interesting that we get, like, a super capable single mom, this idiot teenager who has no idea what she's doing, and... um, basically a a completely ineffectual town leader who also seems to have no idea what she's doing, but in a completely different direction. Um, that was not the spectrum of femininity I expected from this movie, but I found it kind of delightful in its variety.
1: That's true. I don't know that I was, I don't know what I was expecting. I guess more of the, the, the women characters have to be saved. You know, the Jamie Lee Curtis thing, like, you know, escaping away. But at the end, even the, um, Adrian Barbeau character fights off these pirates before the fog recedes, right? She doesn't actually get saved except that the fog finally recedes when the sacrifice is made, right? But she actually fights back.
0: And, and yes. she saves most of the town by her radio. Analysis,
1: yes, right? right. That's right. Yeah. She is she stays up there in order to specifically she's she even sits there and says, I'm sorry, I can't come back to you. And the, and I, the implication was she can't go back to save her kid because she needs to tell the town mm-hmm. which way to go.
2: Yeah, I, I thought that was amazing. This idea that like she relinquishes her motherhood which is obviously very important to her and uses her competence at her job to save a whole bunch of people like love that so true. that's yeah. so interesting
1: and she sticks with it right in the hardest emotional space imaginable and and she knows that at that point too it's also her best bet to try to get somebody to go out there and and it's and she succeeds in um getting the kids saved by doing her job well that's true,
0: what did you guys think about um her radio voice? like she does she has this really great like sexy radio voice, right, and she's like she can turn it on like at will. There's one moment in, in a great performance uh where she's upset about something, but she's about to go on air, so she kind of gets into character and out comes you know the Stevie voice right and, and so there's like a really interesting way in which she understands the power of her sexuality and kind of uses it like um intentionally and 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 so it isn't like there for other people's benefit like she's using it that's true
1: and um, uh, i did notice that right away and especially because back you know 1980 radio live radio was a big deal like it was yeah. a kind of a way to make you feel like you weren't alone because you would listen to this DJ and you could call them up. And, you know, it was, it was just a different thing back in 1980 Uh, not even close to what we have today. And, and especially in a small town where she owns the radio station. So there was this really interesting small town dynamic with her, like the people knew who she was and, and yet she had this persona, this kind of sexy voice that she put on. And all yeah, the men was...
0: are seduced by
1: it. All the the oh, the, totally. the sailors at the
0: beginning, the 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 weather guy, uh, like all of them are completely in love with this voice, right? Um, and she's very clear that the voice is not her. And, and I, thought, yes. I thought that was very interesting.
1: Yeah, she's like you, you know, I'm just this voice to you. You don't really know who I am. Almost kind of says at yeah. one point, you know, which which really, yeah, that's that's quite good. Incidentally, Adrienne Barbeau has uh,
0: she did a podcast I think for Shudder, um, about women in horror and she's the narrator of this podcast and, and so she very often I mean invokes <laughs> this character uh, basically in uh, in her vocals for that podcast. Oh, that's really, so funny. How it's many upsets really cool. is the podcast? I'll uh, have to
1: check that out. It's yeah, a,
0: uh, gosh, it's 10 or 12. It's it's quite a it's a good series, yeah.
1: Okay, because I first saw her in Escape from New York. And my husband, who when they were in the in the eighties, he and his friends, they just had this thing where they would watch it like once a year. Uh-huh. Escape from, New- <laughs> and, and 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 I first saw her in that. I'm like, I'm like, this is like Angelina Jolie, starring Angelina Jolie's breasts and lips, and to a let less, lesser extent, Angelina <laughs> Jolie herself. You know, it's just like she's just like all boob, and, and so I was just like, what is this? And so I respected this role more yeah. than. Escape from New York Um, It was just much more multifaceted Yeah, I think this is a much Better movie than Escape from New York
0: I agree, I like that movie um, And it's fun, but um, This is a much better movie, this is my favorite John Carpenter movie Um, It's your favorite of all of them It is, I I really, I've come to love this one And Prince of Darkness most And uh, um, I've seen Halloween like A thousand times, right, and so It's one I watch ritually and enjoy A lot, but I think of the movies that kind of get me intellectually and uh and kind of like emotionally this is the, my favorite of of john carpenter's movies That's can i um can i uh just say something about jamie lee curtis's character um in this of movie course. i um i get what you're saying i totally do i i this is it's bordering on like a fan theory, and I don't mean it to be a fan theory, because I don't think that in any way this was anybody's intention. OK, but it's like a way I like to creatively engage with these movies. But I often think of The Fog and Halloween as a tandem movie uh, pair, and I, I like to think of The Fog as the dream that Laurie Strode is having while she's in the hospital after the events of Halloween, and um, and I don't know Stevie is on the radio in her hospital, and that's why this sends her into the movie. And and so there's like a way in which her character is everything that Laurie Strode isn't, basically, right? Um, um, and I feel like it's almost cool. like I feel like there's a way in which the movie is trying to let Jamie Lee Curtis play against that. Virginal type, right? Uh, by oh, letting her be a free, free, free loading that's very uh,
1: cool. hitchhiker, and so, and and at the very and end of this movie, and she doesn't get killed from having sex, right? Which is the right. Yeah,
0: and she goes and grabs the child, um, Stevie's child, at the end. Yeah, so she's the babysitter again at the very end of this movie. And so I, I kind of I like to think of them as a tandem. I know that Carpenter and Deborah Hill did not have that in mind. This is not a fan theory, but it is a way in which these movies kind of weirdly fit together, almost like uh, the continents, like, like Africa and South America fit together. Um, like it, I feel like there's a really interesting way you can
1: weave them in, into a, 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 a grand grander. Yeah. Primal, originary way.
2: That's super interesting. And Christina, you make a good point that unlike I don't even remember their names, Annie and the other girl, um, Laurie's (laughs) two friends in Halloween who die immediately after they have sex. um, The Jamie Lee Curtis character in this movie does not die, even though I got very upset at her for having sex with the dude she hitchhiked with. That's a that's a good point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what all these that's one of the major tropes, right? The one of the things that you always see, that scream made an entire film franchise <laughs> off of that. Right. Yeah. And, and So I, I i was kept waiting for it. And then I realized, no, this is a totally different kind of film. It's not doing that, you know, and
2: a, and a bunch of other movies that, you know, respond to horror movie tropes, Cabin in the Woods. Um, Buffy. The Buffy. Have you guys seen that movie, The Final Girls, where they I like get seen. get sucked into the uh, early '80s slasher movie? No,
1: no, oh no, sound that sounds so good.
2: It's. I think you'd both like it. It's really fun. It's got um, Malin Ankerman and Alia Shawkat and a couple other people. It's. Uh, Is it it's, on Netflix? Uh, I don't know. I saw it a couple of years ago.
1: Cool. That sounds really good. All right. Any other thoughts about the female characters or really anything else at this point? I
0: mean, Annie from Halloween shows up as a, uh, Janet Lee's assistant and I love that actress I think she she's got this like spunk both as Annie and as uh, this character uh, oh she me. was in
1: Halloween too oh yeah I didn't she know that. played
0: the first one who gets the first babysitter who gets killed yeah ah. um, she plays Annie um and so um uh, she's appears in she's in Assault on Precinct, Precinct 13 she's in Halloween 3 she had another one of John Carpenter's like kind of go-to people but yeah I I love that actress I just think she has a really terrific like sidekick
1: spunk um <laughs> from the era i think she's great i never would have caught that but yeah there are more uh peripheral or side female characters in this film that had more lines yeah. than i expected uh for a film like this you know uh yeah. their assistants or whatever right to just yeah. a little bit more than that than what i was expecting so all right. any any final uh, other things before we move on to passing on stuff that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to?
0: I think the setting is worth talking about. Um it's a it's a Point Reyes uh state park or national it's it's in California and it's right by Inverness, uh California, and uh I think it's just an amazing setting that's both gorgeous and beautiful but also isolating and foreboding. And, uh, and and I think that the movie makes a beautiful use of the of the landscape, both at the lighthouse and in the pretty little town, too. And so I, I really have always admired that about this movie, too.
1: I was wondering where it was actually filmed, because I know that the uh, San Antonio Bay is a fictitious place. Right. So. Yeah. But I figured it must have been in California somewhere. And they, they did make excellent use of the landscape, just like those 50s. Yeah. um films would do, like Hitchcock in particular. Uh, the yeah. the sense of isolation, the sense of a, of a very small town, porous borders. I don't know. Um
2: and yeah. particularly the the use of the lighthouse I thought um the way that yes. they angled shots inside it. Um when yeah. she when the Adrian Barbo character is uh Stevie is Climbing up the stairs and going on the roof um, There's a lot of Kind of vertigo-esque um, Camera moments that are, are Really effective
1: yeah. yeah vertigo-esque yes that's right And you know I, he probably learned that from him Oh
0: there's a lot I think of similarities Between Hitchcock and, and John Carpenter and, and I don't think John Carpenter Saw himself as a inheritor of that But he definitely there's a, a Minimalism to the to the style it's not overly stylized Right it just sort of relies on um, Kind of rather simple Shots that are very beautifully framed And it's all about suspense It's it's about the the
1: tension Of waiting for the
0: gun to go off Rather yes, than the gun the, going
1: off The unseen things yeah and the framing of the Shots the still almost Comic book effects You know which like the first season of The Walking Dead did so well because It really planned Out those shots rather yeah. than just let's just film and see what happens you know they're planned out shots the opening scene as soon as we hit that opening scene with the watch and the storytelling i thought okay we're gonna get something good here visually
0: yeah and just last thing and i'll let you guys. <laughs> I'm sorry, you, you shouldn't have got, gotten me on this show going all night, but um, the main male character, his name is Nick in this movie, is his name is Nick Castle. That's actually an ode to John Carpenter's friend and collaborator, Nick Castle, who actually played Michael Myers in the original Halloween. And, no uh, way! And, and he actually did some script work for Escape from New York, and he ended up directing a really great '80s sci-fi movie called The Last Starfighter. Nick Castle directed that, and so.
2: Oh no Mike, way! I
0: love yeah. that movie. Yeah. 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 So, so Nick Castle's an homage to uh, to that. And there's another character named Tommy Wallace, who's the editor on this. Uh, Tommy Lee Wallace ended up directing Halloween three, and and, uh, uh, and so yeah, there's a lot of like. Uh, uh owed owed paying
1: (laughs) in this movie there i love it's fun for the the fanboys
0: that's (laughs) That's really fun i love when people do that Yeah. yeah
1: yeah it makes it it makes it fun to go back and watch them again yeah well super well i think that will just about do it let's let's move on to passing on so uh danny what are you passing on to our listeners well i a lot of what you were saying
0: fits in with my suggestion. It's, um, a, a made for TV movie that John Carpenter made called someone's watching me with a exclamation point <laughs> at the end of it. Um, uh, it stars Lauren Hutton, um, and Adrian Barbeau is actually in it. And I think this is where they started kind of, uh, getting to know each other, um, before getting married, but she actually, so it's a really great made for tv movie as good as a made for tv movie in the 70s would ever be um it's kind of your a standard hitchcockian kind of stalker thriller but i really think listeners to this show would be interested in it it's very much uh, a feminist movie it's about this and i my argument about the movie is that it's kind of like about a potential backlash to the mary tyler moore revolution um so uh, you, you've got uh, i'm already th- sold Yeah. Lauren Hutton plays this. TV producer who's uh, or director who's just broken up with a boyfriend and moved to the big city and living on her own. She's uh, sexually aggressive with men. I mean, not aggressive, but she she doesn't wait for men to come talk to her. Uh, she or th- and she goes out to, and meets them and she's being stalked by uh, a, a, just a woman hater. And, and I really do think the movie is a very early sign that John Carpenter has a great interest in women's issues and particularly like regressive ones that are reactionary against. Um, progress. And so I really do think this is a, a movie where it's almost like Mary Tyler Moore gets stalked and uh, and she has to stand up for herself because the police won't believe her. Uh, and it's a really, really great TV movie that you can find on digital streaming and whatnot. And so I highly recommend it. Very few people have seen it, or too few anyway, but it's a, it's a terrific movie.
2: S- sounds like we need to do an episode on that next year. If we do, <laughs> will you come on?
0: Oh, absolutely. And, All right, and Andrew, let's do it. Then, Adrienne Barbeau is basically Rhoda. I mean, you can imagine her as Rhoda, right? oh, and so gosh. she plays her friend, who's a lesbian, and uh, and uh, and so it's a really, really interesting uh, movie. And I would be happy to talk about that anytime you like. Did you say it was streaming somewhere? Oh yeah, you can rent it on uh, I've, on streaming services. I don't know which one. I bought it streaming somewhere, uh, and so uh, but yeah, I enjoy it.
1: Super. That's super. Victoria, what about you?
2: Uh, So I have uh, an article from Filmotomy, uh, which is one of my favorite film blogs, Um, an article called Feminism and the Fog. Um, Danny mentioned Howard Hawks uh, several times, and this article argues that um, the three women in the movie – Operate on a spectrum of the Hawksian female role uh, made famous by actresses like Barbara Stanwyck and Lauren Bacall. Um, And uh, the article opens with that really famous Howard Hawks quote about women Uh, I think girls who insult people are very attractive, and then goes (laughs) from there. Uh
1: Well, that's a winner right there. Yeah.
2: Uh, so Filmotomy, uh, Feminism and the Fog by Joan Amin. Uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes.
1: Super. Yeah. And I'm also going to recommend a very short clip that um, is a recent, I mean, like a couple of days ago, film article from Slash Film called The Fog Works because it proves some of the best ghost stories are the simplest, uh, where the writer is recommending this film simply because it's powerful in its simplicity. And I really think that's true. And we are getting a kind of a reevaluation of what exactly things make things creepy and scary. And uh, I think this film does justice to that. The other recommendation that I have is, is the mist the film. I can't remember what year that was, but I'm a real big Frank Darabont fan and I Uh loved the walking dead when he was doing it. And, and he has all those same set of stars in that film. And it's also very simple uh, in its conception, but very powerful and and, and really a better film than I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. So that's my recommendation. All righty. Well, thank you everyone for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for our future shows, or if you just want us to to drop us a line, you can do so at Christian Feminist Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle, which is at ch Radio Network. And of course, check out the show notes from this and all of our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at Christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, which is doing the crossover. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison for Danny. Anderson and Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm Christina Bieber Lake. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the new aunt. Until then, in essentials unity, in non essentials liberty, and in all things love.